Some men just want to watch the world burn. That, that has to be one of the best one-sentence descriptions of Satan that Hollywood has ever produced. Some men just want to see the world burn. And this morning, we're going to talk about Satan. Um, now, this doesn't look like the kind of setting that you would expect for a discussion about Satan. But I'll get to that in just a little bit, all right? We're going to talk about Satan, the fallen angel who has led this insurrection against God, Satan, the uh, elemental terrorist. It's interesting, over the past few months, he's gotten a lot of press. Uh, ABC uh, did a program called Nightline and a feature called Face Off, in which uh, Pastor Mark Driscoll and uh, kind of self-help uh, uh, guru, alternative medicine uh, guru, uh, uh, Deepak Chopra, uh, did a point-counterpoint over the question, does Satan exist? And uh, interestingly enough, the program stated that 70% of Americans in our culture believe that Satan is real. One American novelist said, if you don't believe in God and the devil, I wouldn't say you're crazy, but you are intellectually malnourished. (laughs) My question is, what's the best truth source for a conversation about the devil? And my argument is that the Bible is. The Bible is. And so, this morning, we are going to look at uh, the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapters 12 and 13. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there. That's on page 873 of your church Bibles, and if you could hold that in readiness. Uh, Revelation chapters 12 and 13 uh, take us to really the center of the book of Revelation. We're just kind of right at... uh, you know, the 50-yard line when we get to Revelations 12, Revelation 12 and 13. And at the, at the center of this last book of the Bible, we probe the depths as to why there is so much suffering and slaughter and persecution and oppression on earth. Christianity teaches that behind the visible destruction that goes on today is an invisible destroyer, an unseen, diabolical enemy who wants nothing more than to watch the world burn. And um, as a reminder to how relevant this is to us, you know, later on in our service, we are going to be praying over our graduating seniors and us... um, at graduation, some, uh, you know, some of our seniors go to college, and in the back of every parent's mind is the question, how will my ha- child handle the pressures and responsibilities and liberties of their, of their new life? How is that going to happen? Uh, if they enter the military, how will they handle an environment where both believers and unbelievers work? If they enter the workforce, how will they do against this unseen enemy? And and Revelation chapters 12 and 13 uh, tell us in, in symbolic, rich language. We're going to need to spend some time this morning uh, decoding some of these images uh, to help us understand. These are images that 
those believers in the first century and in the beginning of the second century, they would not need decoding. They would, they would, they would know immediately what these images are about. But because we live in another culture and in another time period, we kind of need to uh, do some unpacking, and so we're going to do that. But let's start at Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. It says, a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. Now, stop right there. <laughs> okay, we're going to go faster than what I'm going to be doing here for just a minute, but we have to stop right here, okay? Uh, because uh, it, it's a very important point. Any discussion, and it explains this, any discussion that takes place about Satan, note where the conversation takes place. It takes place in God's temple in heaven before the throne. Isn't that reassuring, isn't it? You know, John doesn't tell this story in the Batcave. He tells it in heaven because the devil is God's devil. And though John is in exile on the island of Patmos, though Christianity um, is about to enter a century, a century and a half of intense persecution at the outset, John wants believers then and now to understand that everything is under control. Everything. God is sovereign. Things are not out of hand. Jesus is on the throne. Heaven is the safest place to have a conversation about the most dangerous fiend in the universe. So we're safe right here discussing Satan. Why? Because we are in heaven before the throne. That's good news. Let's continue. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on his head. That is one bad dragon. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Wow, talk about decoding. <laughs> all right, we've got a dragon, okay? Kind of know who that is. Right, we got a dragon, we got the mother in labor, we got a baby boy, we got 1,260 days. What is that all about? Well, let me explain it first of all this way, all right? If you were to retell the story, uh, the, the, the narrative, the plot of Christianity, Jesus, his mission, uh, what he's about, why he came, if you were to share the core truths of Christianity, right? How would you do it using the characters from The Dark Knight? Right? Now, you may be asking, well, why would I do that? Well, work with me, okay? Just, just, just work with me here for a little bit, all right? How would you do that? 
uh, um, uh, who, you know, who would you make the characters be, right? You know, I, I mean, would Batman kind of be a Christ figure? Would, uh, would Alfred, you know, the, the butler, and then Lucius Fox, Morgan Freeman's character, would, would Alfred and, and Morgan Freeman and then Batman, would they kind of form a sort of a trinity? Uh, uh, would Rachel Dawes uh, uh, be a martyred believer, uh, someone who believed in Batman but ended up giving, uh, you know, her life up? Uh, for that, if you haven't seen the movie, I'm sorry. Uh, but what about Commissioner Gordon? What about Commissioner Gordon? Um, all right. Sarah hasn't seen the movie. Um, what, what, would he represent a believer? Huh? Struggling against evil, uh, but powerless on his own, and so he needs the help that only Batman can give? Okay. Who would he be? What, and you know who I think the Joker would be. <laughs> Hello? Huh? Right? Satan, the deceiver. The liar. He lied about how he got his scars, you know. I want to know how he got these scars. He tells different stories that are lies. You know. he, he deceived Batman into going after Harvey Dent when Batman wanted to go after his girlfriend, you know. He's an, and he's an agent of chaos. He just wants to watch the world burn. How would you tell the story of Christianity using characters from the contemporary cultural story of Batman? How would you do that? Huh? Now, I mention all of this for a specific reason. When John describes a laboring mother, a baby boy, and a savage red dragon, he's using characters from a very popular story in his day from Greek mythology. See, that's what he's doing. The Greeks had a myth about how the great dragon Python pursued a pregnant goddess named Leto because Python, the dragon, learned that Leto's son, if born, would grow up to kill him. You see? And so, brilliantly, in a stroke of genius, the Apostle John borrows these characters from a story very familiar in his day to communicate timeless biblical truth. And the Apostle John asserts that in Christ, this Greek myth has become reality in human history. See? That's what's going on here. And, and it's a pretty savage dragon, wouldn't you say? This, this sleazy, bloodthirsty serpent. And excuse me uh, for being graphic here, but this bloodthirsty serpent positions himself where a nurse midwife would normally position himself or herself, you see? And his, the intention is not to deliver the baby, but to devour the baby, to destroy the baby. And who is the baby? Well, verse 5 makes it clear. The baby's Jesus. He will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. can't be anybody else. And so then John fast forwards from the birth of Christ straight to the ascension to God and the throne. John, John, John does not uh, delay by telling, retelling the story of Jesus' boyhood and baptism and miracles and teaching of the cross and the resurrection. That, that's already been covered in the Gospels, you see. You can read about that in the Gospels. Verse 5 says that the child was snatched up to God and his throne, and the path to the throne was the cross. The cross. The cross serves as the ultimate battlefield upon which God defeated the insurgency of Satan. Christ's victory, his death, burial, and resurrection 
for your sins and mine was the battle that culminated in Satan's permanent exile and expulsion from heaven. That's why verse 9 says that Satan was hurled down to the earth and his angels with him. He was hurled. Notice it doesn't say he was escorted. He was hurled down. And that's why verses 10 through 12 in chapter 12, just break out in a hymn of worship. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him. How? By the blood of the lamb. The blood of the, blood of the lamb and the testimony of the gospel of Jesus, that is what overcomes and defeats the devil. And, and, and really, it's here, church family, where we learn how evil is defeated from God's point of view. And, and I like how one uh, Bible scholar put it. I, I've got the quote up here. I want you to see it. Follow along with me as I read it. It says, To triumph fully... Evil needs two victories, not one. The first victory happens when an evil deed is done. The second victory, when evil is returned. After the first victory, evil would die if the second victory did not infuse it with new life. Do you see? You see what we're learning here? At the cross, evil died. Satan exhausted his arsenal on Jesus, the Son of God. And Jesus starved him to death. In sacrificial love, Christ spent himself for our sake. He cried out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. You see? See, church, the, the, the cross removes the one thing that keeps us from God, and that is unforgiven sin. And isn't that what Satan has been accusing us all along? Who accuses them before our God, verse 10, day and night. That's all Satan does. He's just constantly bringing up your junk, your past, your disobedience, your bad habits, your sins. He's bringing yours up. He's bringing mine up before God. That's, that's all he does. But at the cross, Christ paid for the penalty of my crimes against heaven. And so now when Satan stands before the throne and says, Father, you know, uh, Randy has committed crimes against heaven and earth. Jesus, our advocate, stands and says, Father, Randy's crimes have been paid in full by me at the cross. And God the Father declares me innocent, paid. You can walk. You can enter my kingdom. In, in fact, in fact, this chapter informs us that since the cross God the Father no longer hears Satan's accusations. He has been barred from heaven. He's been hurled down. He's out. I, I love this preacher uh, who once said that the preaching of Christ is the whip that flogs the devil. I like that. I do. I, I hope Satan's feeling it this morning. The preaching of Christ is the thunderbolt, think Friday night storm. The preaching of Christ is the thunderbolt, the sound of which makes all hell shake. That's good. 
and God hurled Satan to earth. Yeah. You know, the uh, anniversary of D-Day is coming here in a few weeks, and uh, anybody with half a brain knew that on D-Day, with, with over one million armed forces invading Europe and France, the Third Reich was done. I mean, it was over. But Hitler was self-deceived. And that's why he plotted the Battle of the Bulge. It was his last stand. Right now, right now, is Satan's Battle of the Bulge. He's conducting his own version of the Battle of the Bulge right now here on earth. And that's why he pursues the woman, the mother. And we haven't talked about her, have we? Who is she? Huh? Who is she? We know, you know, the, the Satan's the dragon and... Uh, the male child is Jesus, but who is this mother? Who is this woman? Well, I'll tell you who it's not. It's not the Virgin Mary, okay? It's not. Because look what happens to the mother. She goes to the desert. She goes uh, to the wilderness, to this place prepared for her by God. And later on, this woman is pursued by the... She's pursued by the dragon and protected by God. Pursued by the dragon and protected by God. And, and Revelation twelve fourteen says, she's given wings. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert. That, that's a direct reference. John, John, remember, you've got to understand your Old Testament if you're going to understand the book of Revelation. And you can, you can just cross-reference Revelation 12, 14 to Exodus 19, 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So the woman, the mother, is a symbol for the people of God, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The people of God, the messianic community. We are pursued... And we are protected. And uh, chapter 12 tells us, you know, Satan tries to flood the woman with a river. God steps in to swallow up the river. We are pursued and we're protected. And, and this goes on for, look at that number, 1,260 days. We, it's not the first time we've seen this number, right? And uh, when the first to receive the book of Revelation would have heard that number. 1,260 days, 42 months, uh, a time, times, and a half a time. When those folks would have heard that number, you know, they would, they would have instinctively have understood it just as you and I understand the numbers 9-11, and we get that, right? Or December 7th, you know, we get that. Huh? And that number is based on the period in, human, in, in Jewish history uh, when the pagan tyrant Antiochus terrorized the Hebrew people for 1,260 days. In other words, it's a symbol for an intense but limited period of persecution. An intense but limited period of persecution. So, so we've got the dragon, that's Satan. We've got the, the male child, that's Jesus. We've got the, the woman, that's God's people. All right, the messianic community from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And then we've got this 1,260 days, an image drawn from Jewish history, meaning an intense but limited period of time. Satan is maniacal. 
He, he has been... He tried to destroy the people of God before the Messiah came. He tried to destroy the Messiah when he came. Remember what Herod did in the slaughter of the infants? Now he's trying to destroy God's people since the ascension of Christ. But make no mistake, Satan is a defeated foe. And what we need to understand is that from God's point of view, the evil that is happening... (laughs) The evil that is happening on earth today is not evidence of Satan's power, but actually it is evidence of Satan's vulnerability and his weakness, you see. Because what happened at the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ when Jesus assumed the throne? What ha- Satan was hurled out of the vast expanses of heaven and God has corralled him and fenced him in to this tiny little itty bitty space called earth. See, that's all he has. That's all he's got. He's got this little bitty space that's control, that's control over, you know, and you say, well, I happen to be there too. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <sighs> I know. And that's why John says, endure, persevere. Satan is doing what he's doing, verse 12, because he knows his time is short. See, Satan doesn't know a lot, but he knows that much. He knows his time is short. And so what you need to do is You need to overcome and endure. And how do we do that? We do that that, that by clinging to the cross of Jesus and the message of the gospel. And we do that, here we go, verse 11, you see that? By not loving our lives so much as to shrink from death. No shrinking. No shrinking. I'm not shrinking. We're moving straight ahead. I'm, I'm not turning my back on this diabolical, maniacal, self-deluded insurrectionist. No, no. By the power of the cross, uh, Jesus has already won. You see, he's defeated. And, and you know what? John tells us, he's, he's, he's given those believers warning then, and he's telling us now, if you... Hold fast to Jesus. If you are growing in your relationship with Christ, you are a target. Verse 12. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. That's us. Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. You're obeying the commandments. You're living for Christ. You're experiencing persecution. You're in God's will. You are pursued, but you're protected, you see. And and, and chapter 12 ends with this dragon standing on the shore of the sea. Now, the Hebrew people, they were land lovers. We don't, they didn't didn't really have a fancy navy, okay? They love the land. And so the sea to them, the sea to land lovers are, the the sea is, is, is chaotic and dark and, abysmal and all. So, so of course, that's, that's the dragon's hometown right there. So he's standing on the shores of the sea. It's kind of like he's regrouping. And in chapter 13, we learn how Satan wages war 
in the short time that he has remaining. And the Apostle John describes how Satan wages war in the short time that he has remaining by, by describing, he describes it this way. He, he utilizes two beasts, two beasts. And, and I, I think he's getting his images, again, from the Old Testament. In, in the book of Job, Job chapters 40 and 41, there's a, there's a description of the, the beast from the sea, the behemoth, and the beast from the land, the Leviathan. And so, so what we're reading here, what we read here in chapters 12 and 13 is we're reading about Satan the dragon, Satan the sea beast, and Satan the land beast. Now, did you get that? Satan the dragon, Satan the sea beast, Satan the land beast. You see what's going on here? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is being aped or mimicked or parodied by Satan. And isn't that what we would expect from Satan? Because he is a deceiver. He is a trickster. He has no original ideas, you know. No. He's a pretender. And John tells us about you know, this false trinity. This false trinity. And he tells us about this sea beast. We read about this sea beast. And John uses imagery. Again, he's drawing from the Old Testament. So you've, you've got to know Daniel chapter 7 to get this. Because he describes this sea beast... You know, resembling a leopard, feet like those of a bear, mouth like that of a lion. And in the book of Daniel, this re- represented political powers. So this sea beast represents a godless political power that is very smart and very fast. And in John's day, it was, it, it was nothing other than the Roman Empire. And interestingly enough, when, when John's hearers, John's readers would have been listening and they would have thought, okay, in... in Verse 3, when Nero died, it was like a fatal wound. But then decades later, it was as if the empire had resurrected and become a sole world superpower. And verse 4, who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? Who could make war against the Roman Empire, you see? And the Roman Empire, which in the first century was somewhat indifferent to Christianity, in the second and third centuries becomes hostile to Christianity. And that's why... Chapter 13, verse 7 says, he was given power to make war against the saints. So this sea beast symbolizes godless political power hostile to Christianity. And, uh, I mean, the, the sea beast was Egypt in Moses' day, Assyria in Isaiah's day, Rome in John's day, Spain in the days of the Inquisition, communist Russia, Hitlerized Germany, I pray that it never be our government. And, uh, but if it is, what do we do? What do we do? And John says, here's what you do. Verse 10. If you're supposed to go to jail, go to jail. If you're to be martyred, then you be martyred. You do not turn your back. You face it. You face it. You face it. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Wow. It's tough stuff to hear, isn't it? But it's truth. It's truth. And, and, and then John concludes chapter 13 with a land beast. 
this in tandem with the sea beast is the image of the land beast. And the land beast represents counterfeit faith. That's what we see here, right? He had two horns like a lamb. Huh? Looks like Jesus. Talks like Satan. That's a counterfeit. Okay? Mimicking the Lamb of God. And like the Old Testament prophet Elijah in verse 13 says that this this land beast performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Listen, the lesson is really clear. Do not trust your eyes, trust your ears. Your eyes can be deceived, but you listen for the Word of God. You listen for the Word of God. And in John's day, you know, the land beast was, was, was none other than the worship of the Roman emperor. I mean, if the Ro- Roman temples, the good citizens of Rome had to pay homage to Caesar or face persecution. And my goodness, the city of Ephesus boasted of a 25-foot statue of the emperor Domitian. Huh? I mean, and then you had to choose. You had to choose. You've got to choose. And so you have this, you have this, this counterfeit religious you have a Christless church in tandem with a godless government. Wow, that's scary. Listen, listen, whenever the church gets in bed with the government, it's good for the government and bad for the church. It is. That's, that's not to say that we do not need you know, Christians in Congress or Christians in Springfield. Oh my goodness, of course we do. Of course we do. But I'm saying, I'm saying that compromises just around the corner when we do not maintain our distinctive culture, our Christ-saturated culture. And, uh, and that means we're going to have to choose. And that's what's behind verses 16 to 18, church family. You've, verses 16 to 18 are about choosing Satan or choosing Jesus. You must render a verdict. You must. And if you choose Jesus then you get his seal or his mark. And we learned about that in Revelation chapter 7, verse 3. You choose Jesus, you get his mark. But Satan mimics Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus is perfect. The number 7 is a symbol of perfection, which would make Jesus the number 8 because he's greater than perfection, right? But Satan isn't. He's not perfect. He's almost, but not quite. He's not perfect. So he's not seven. He's six. And so holy, holy, holy is mimicked by 666. I don't think 666 is a barcode or a credit card or a microchip embedded in your forehead. I just don't. I could be wrong, but I don't. I think what John's trying to tell believers then and now is that you've got to choose. You, you, you're going to get a mark. You, you're going to get a tattoo. <laughs> you just got to choose which one you want. Satan or Jesus. And if you choose Jesus, you will face the wrath of Satan. You will. If you choose Satan, then you will eternally face the wrath of Christ. <laughs> See, you're going to face wrath. So just pick. Pick. Choose. Hmm. And John tells believers, 
He encourages them. He encourages them. Keep choosing Christ. Keep you overcome by the cross of Christ. You overcome by the gospel of Christ. Satan is flogged every time the gospel is preached by believers who do not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Here's what I'm trying to say, church family. God's people overcome the lies of Satan by the truth of Christ. There it is, right there. Straight ahead, we're not turning our back. We're moving forward. We're moving forward. We're not going to shrink back. We're not. You know, the scripture talks about Satan uh, not just as a dragon, but as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And uh, I read this week about an author and a naturalist named uh, Craig Childs. Craig Childs um, researches uh, the American mountain lions. And uh, in the United States, mountain lions are uh, the animals regarded as the number one human predator. And Craig was telling of a time that he was in Arizona doing research on these lions, and he approached a water hole from downwind, and he spotted a mountain lion drinking water, and the lion did not see him. Um, the lion, in fact, finished drinking and then walked away. And uh, after a few minutes, uh, Craig Childs went to the water hole to try to identify the tracks in the mud and to do research and take notes. And just before he bent down for a closer look, uh, 30 feet away in the shadows, he saw a pair of eyes. And then out of the shadows came the lion walking toward him. Craig Childs said he pulled his knife and he stared into the eyes of that lion. He said, I, I knew what I had to do, and more importantly, I knew what I was not to do. He wrote, mountain lions are known to take down animals six, seven, eight times their size, and their method is to attack from behind. And what they do is they clamp on to the spine at the base of the prey's skull, and they snap the spine. And the top few vertebrae are the target... Those vertebrae house the respiratory and motor skills that cease instantly when the cord is cut. Mountain lions have stalked people for miles. One woman survived an attack and escaped by foot on the road. The lion shortcut the road several miles farther and killed her from behind. I'm never going to Arizona, I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> there. Craig Child says... I hold firm to my ground and I do not even hint that I will back off. If I run, if I run, I'll have a mountain lion all over me. And if I give it my back, I will only briefly feel its weight on me against the ground and its canine teeth will open my vertebrae without breaking a single bone. He wrote, the lion begins to move to my left and I turn, keeping my face on it. My knife is at my right side. The lion then paces to my right. He's trying to get around on my other side. He's trying to get behind me. But I turn and I stare right at it and my stare is the only defense that I have. The lion continues to try to provoke 
Craig Childs to run, turning left, then right, back and forth, again and again. Now it's just 10 feet away. And finally, the standoff ends. The lion turns and walks away, defeated by someone who knew the truth, who knew the truth about what to do and what never to do. Church family, this morning, we have been given the truth. John the Apostle has similar knowledge about our greatest enemy, Satan. And he knows Satan's methods. And so he teaches us how to defend ourselves. Never turn your back. We have won the war. Eyes straight ahead. We proceed forward in the power and the message of the gospel of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Jesus. We're grateful for your victory. A victory that we will celebrate again right here, right now in Holy Communion. A reminder to us each week that the war has been won and that our enemy is on a desperate, diabolical pursuit of that which will mean nothing because his time is short. My prayer for us is that we would cling to the cross and cling to the gospel and resolve never to shrink back, never to love our lives so much, never to love possessions so much, never to love anything or anyone so much that we would shrink back from the gospel, from Jesus, from the one who reigns, from the throne. Thank you for the security of the throne. Oh Lord, we love you. Amen.